remain standing, we're going to read from the sixth chapter of Ephesians, the Word of God, this morning. It is a short four verses that we will be, five verses that we'll be reading. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand. Stand firm with the belt of truth around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. This is the word of God. Please be seated. You know, when we, uh, when we talk about spiritual battles, there are few things in life that we really uh, expect except that we would have battles in paying our bills or battles in relationships with, uh, with our friends and our families and with our neighbors. But rarely do we ever give time to really thinking through what it means to be a Christian in a non-Christian world. And what I mean by that is that you and I who profess faith in Jesus Christ are looked at by those who don't as weird. And for what we have found this year to be the first time in a long time in the history of our country, there are actually more people who do not believe in Christ living in the United States than do. And so we are, as a church, on one of the verge of the greatest challenges that we have ever faced in this church in its whole history, and this church was started in 1765. Now think of that. In 1765, the country did not even exist. And yet God has chosen this church to remain open this long, preserving the preaching of the gospel. And through all those years, people who sat in pews where you're sitting face challenges just like you do. And they found their hope in Jesus Christ. Now think of that. Is there any other people who could be so bold as to proclaim Christ except those who know him? And yet, as you and I see what is happening in our culture, we're seeing a great oppressive push to make those who believe in God seem very uneducated fundamental, out of the mainstream, when in fact just the opposite is true. And so as we get into this series on spiritual battles, one of the things that we find is that Paul begins to list for us, or I should say for the Ephesians, a list of armament that they are to wear in such a way that they are able to withstand the evil of their day. And what that means for you is that it's meant for you to put on this armor to stand the evil that is in your day. And so as we deal with truth this morning, we're not going to deal with righteousness. The first is the belt of truth. One of the things that really amazes me as we think about truth is how, how I talk to so many people today who say, I don't know where to find the truth anymore. Do you? When we cut on our televisions or look on our our 
our iPads or our iPhones or, wh or whatever phone you might be using, our smartphones, one of the things that you and I begin to wrestle with is, do I really understand what I'm reading to be absolutely true? We're living in a technolo technology age where you can get any information from anywhere around the world, and now we're dealing with, is it true? I find that absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, in the midst of that kind of thing, you are not far from what it, the Ephesians experienced in their day. You see, as you would walk into the central city of Ephesus, you would see in the middle of the city a beautiful building that was housing the library knowledge of the Greek and Roman world. And so you could walk into that building and read from any philosopher who had ever written up until that time and their ideas of life and what life is about and how to live life and for those of you who are technical savvy how-to books on how to do certain things you could find that information in that library and in the midst of that library with all of that knowledge they had no knowledge of who God was none and the evidence was all around the city because there throughout the city you would find statues to gods and goddesses that were worshipped that people prayed to and worshipped but hoped in for no other reason than they had nothing else to put their hope in. On the hill above the city was one of the seven wonders of the world which is a beautiful temple to Dionysus. And you would go and worship this, this god or goddess in such a way that, that you would place your hope that that she would bless you with bounty. It was a city of great commerce. People came to the market there and they traded and sold in goods. It was a very wealthy city, a very rich city of the Roman Empire. And yet in all the riches and all the knowledge that they had as a people, they did not have any knowledge of the one true God until the Apostle Paul came and preached the gospel. And as they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God had done in sending his own son into the world, that anyone who would believe in him would be not only forgiven of their sins, but they would come to know the one true God. Many, both Jew and Gentile, came out of that idolatrous lifestyle and began to listen to God as the gospel was preached. And so the greatest concern as Paul is closing this letter to the Ephesians, he's writing from jail. You see, even here, Paul is suffering for the gospel, the truth of the gospel that goes out. He is suffering for it in such a measure he is now wanting to pass on to the Ephesians some things for them to remember as he closes his letter that they, just like he, are in a spiritual battle and that battle is against the forces of darkness. And you say, well, wait a minute, what forces of darkness? Well, we will remember in the Gospels, Jesus talked about the fact that those who did not recognize him, did not acknowledge him, did not follow him, were under the power of the darkness of the world. The prince of the power of darkness, meaning the devil. And that the world in all of its creation is in a dark, dark area of the kingdom that does not belong to God. It's a kingdom of evil, of wickedness. And now that the light of God has come through into the world through Christ, this light has spread throughout the world and many are coming to know this light of Jesus 
and they're beginning to hold on and trust in him. In the midst of the culture they're leaving, they are still in the culture, but they're no longer of it because they're born of Christ. And as Paul's writing this letter, he is giving them some marching orders. Put on the full armor of God. The imagery there, we think, is a Roman soldier, though we're not exactly sure. Some commentators argue that that's not the only imagery. Because if you go back and you look at other places in the scriptures, you'll find that that kind of language is given in Psalm 65 where, where God is being girded with might or, or another Psalm, Psalm 118, where it talks about being girded with strength. And then in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 1.13, Peter talks about in an awkward metaphor about being girded, girding our minds with girding our loins with a new mind, a new way of thinking. All of this is really speaking about the imagery, metaphors that are given to us to understand the battle that we're facing with what we see and don't see as far as spiritual powers, rulers, and principalities. What is that about? Well, have you ever noticed that you never have to go out and look for evil? It's always nearby. You ever notice that? Have you ever noticed that you never have to work hard to do what's wrong? It just seems to happen. It's, it just, that's one reason why you find so many conspiracy theories on the Internet these days. is because everyone says, well, there's a conspiracy to take over the world. It's too late. The world's already taken over. You see, everyone is under the dominion of sin. They are, un, they are enslaved to this dark force that is at work in the world that has alienated humanity from God. And it is the reason that Christ has come in the world to bring that light of the new kingdom so that anyone who would repent and believe in him would be saved. Now that sounds kind of hokey, doesn't it? I mean, people hear that in our culture and they say, What? You believe that? And then you go to places like California where they talk to rocks and pet them. And so when Paul's writing to them, he says to them, listen to me very carefully. You are in a spiritual battle, and because of that, you need, first of all, to put on the full armor of God. And the first thing that is put on in that armor is the belt of truth. I don't know about you, but as I've gotten older, I've had this continual problem with belts. <laughs> they seem to get smaller as I get older. And I have noticed that when I put certain belts on, that if I put them on in the right way, I actually feel a lot of support in carrying around the extra weight. Have you noticed that? Not about me, but about you. Have you noticed that? And so when you think of the belt of truth, well, what is it that Paul is talking about? Well, in that Roman culture, under the loose-fitting garment, they would put on top of that loose-fitting garment before any other armament went on, they would put on a belt that was literally meant to lock in and to tie together all of the rest of the armament that would be put on. And so this belt of truth would be singularly the very core armament that was absolutely vital for the rest of the armament to work. 
whether it was the breastplate of righteousness or the helmet of salvation, whatever else might be carried by the, by the soldier, he would need to have that belt of truth because from it he would be able to take the other armament and use them in a way to defeat the enemy that was before him. It was an unseen support. It was not something that was necessarily on the outward appearance vital for any kind of battle, but it was extremely important for the foundation of preparation for the battle that the person would face. And so there are some things here this morning that Paul begins to talk with us about that are very important for you and I in this time that we live. And the first is truth, as he's talking about, is not just truth of the gospel. It's not that Jesus is Lord and Savior. All of that's true. But in this context, Paul is talking about truth as an element of our character and our activity that is to be demonstrated. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, we're going to get more deeply into that. But truth, if you believe something to be true, it affects how you live. If you believe something to be true, you base your life on what that is that you believe to be true. It, it, it literally influences what you eat, how you dress, where you live, the job you take. Every part of your life is based upon those foundational principles of what you believe to be true. I'll give you an example. We no longer, or at least as a culture, we no longer bury our money in jars in the backyard. By the way, has anybody done that lately? I'm glad you're not telling anybody. But there was a day when no one trusted banks. Do you remember that? Some of you don't. You're, you're too, too old. You're too young, whatever. There was a time when our banking system totally failed, and so the only way people could really be sure that they could have the money that they needed to live, they would literally take the money, put it in mason jars, and bury it in the backyard. And they did that because they didn't want anybody to steal it and they wanted to have access to it when emergencies came up. And so because of that, when that era began to wane and banks began to be popular again after the depression in our country, one of the greatest concerns that we had was how do we make certain that people in our country trust banks again? And the government came up with an idea. It was called insurance so that every bank is insured by the federal government so that if you deposit your money in the bank around the corner, you are going to have a guarantee from the United States government that if that bank closes your money, which you put in that bank, you are still going to have access to. And it was one of, the, one of the many things, but the most important thing our government ever did to reestablish trust in our banking system. Now I use that as an illustration in this, that Paul is writing to us as, as he writes to the Ephesians and he's saying that you and I are in a spiritual battle and the first and important place is what do you trust in? He says secondly, or I should go, uh, let me just go through these very quickly. He says, he says, secondly, it's not only a matter of the element of our trust of what we trust in, it's also a fact that we have a way of using truth in our spiritual battles. And so I really want to deal with those two points this morning. 
that truth is a matter of our character and our activity that is to be demonstrated. But secondly, truth is a weapon that we use against the forces of evil that are in this world. Well, let me take the first element, and that is that it's a character or activity. Please notice that when you came to know Christ, when you came to believe in Jesus Christ, one of the things that happened in your heart was a birth of a new relationship with a true God, the one true God, who you did not know before you came to know Christ, but now that you, don't, you know him, you are in Christ. So whenever you read in the New Testament, we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Why did this Paul and, and Peter say that we're in Christ? Well, the, the reason is because you once were in Adam. And in Adam, you were under the dominion of evil, the, the sin that came through Adam. All men and women were plunged under that power. But now that you're in Christ, you have been freed from that dominion, and you are now in Christ under his dominion. And you have your whole, the Holy Spirit at work in you, and it is a seal that God has given you as a down payment for the final day of our salvation when Christ will be revealed and sin will be in its presence removed from this world. But until then, we are working out what Paul says is our sanctification, our becoming more and more like uh, imitators of God. And so that's the first thing that's about this truth is we follow Jesus Christ because we have come to know the truth of God and therefore because of that invitation we have received from God, we now desire and our intention in living is to please God. You didn't have that before you came to Christ. You pleased yourself. But now that you are in Christ and you have been known and are known by God and you have now gained a relationship with the one true God, you are constantly thinking, am I pleasing God? Am I doing what is pleasing to him? The second thing that Paul points about here is that not only have you been freed to please God, you've been freed to serve God. And it's according to a knowledge that you have right now. We don't know everything about Christ. We don't know everything about God the Father. In fact, one of the things I thought interesting this past week as I heard some teaching from another pastor is how he told his congregation that no one ever comes to a place where they feel like they have completely understood the Bible. Do you? No. It's a continual work, isn't it? It's a continual work where we are constantly learning from the Bible how to live, how to love God, how to please him. And so in light of that, one of the things that becomes very evident in wanting to find a life based upon loving and following God is putting the belt of truth around our loins in such ways that now we're, we're seeking ways to serve God based upon what we know that pleases him. And so we give money to the poor. We take time and effort to help people who are abandoned. We make every effort to make the gospel known around the world. We would never do that. Why? We do it because we have come to know the truth. 
Thirdly, he says that not only we're serving God and a desire to please God, he says, thirdly, we now desire to know the will of God more perfectly. Now, I find this to be most amazing because when you think about Paul's life, Paul was a dedicated Jew who in his own zealousness believed he loved God and he did everything he could to kill and imprison Christians until he came to know the truth. And it was on a road to Damascus where the light of Christ came into his life and he realized that the people he, were, he was persecuting were not just people, they were people who belonged to Jesus. And the first words that Jesus spoke to Paul as he was blinded by the light that came from heaven, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And so in those words, Jesus really revealed to Paul and to us that because we are now the people of God belonging to Jesus Christ, following this truth that God has revealed through his Son to us in this world of darkness, he has now given us the light of Christ and we are continually growing and knowing more and more about how to follow Jesus. This is why discipleship is so important in a church because you have to learn how to pray. You have to learn how to forgive. You have to learn how to love people who are different from you. You have to learn these things. Have you ever noticed you never have to teach any children how to hit one another? You ever notice that? But yet for those who have been rescued from that kingdom of darkness and brought into the light, we are people who have come to know Christ, but that's not the end of it. We are still learning, desiring to please God, serving him. And in that vein, that truth of God is changing us so that we, we can't go a day without reading the Bible and not be affected. We can't go a day without talking with God, without being affected. Because our life is now in Christ. Christ has become the person who guides and steers and directs us in such measure that our spirits are very much attuned, not to the world any longer, but to God the Father. And through that work of his Holy Spirit, he convicts and reproves and teaches and encourages and admonishes us. Fourthly, and most surprisingly, that this truth is a demonstration of our character and that, that we not only desire to please God and serve God and grow in our knowledge of God, we also come to a place where we have a determination to serve God without any regard to ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, remember I told you Paul was writing from prison? Do you actually realize that Paul said, I'm so thankful for my chains? I am so thankful for my chains that God has counted me worthy to suffer for this truth of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I find that amazing. that we have been called to a truth that the world rejects, but we now have seen to be the truth. And you would think everybody would want to know it. I remember when I received Christ as a teenager, when I came to understand what God did for me in the cross and how 
how freeing it was to receive him and to come to know him. How the gospel of John, as I began to read it, just opened up to me in ways I'd never known before. And as I was absorbing that word and it was filling my heart, how I began to see that Jesus didn't die for someone else. He died for me. And it just propelled me to want to, just, to please him and to know him and to love him and to serve him. And I'd go home and I'd tell my friends, guess what's happened to me? And they'd look at me and say, what? And I'd say, I came to know the truth. That Christ died for my sins and he died for yours. And a lot of my best friends would look at each other and say, oh boy, he got religion. They were not happy. Because they saw the change. Do you know why they weren't happy? Because they knew it was true. And they didn't want the truth. You see, that's the real battle that's happening in our culture right now. It's a battle that you see being played out and behind everything that you see is this battle of whether there is one true God or there's not. That's it. Do you remember the name of a man named Charles Templeton? you remember that name? You probably don't because he was someone who, in the early days, was very popular in his ministry. He was a protege of Billy Graham. They were both evangelists. And as young men, they would go around and they would begin their ministry of evangelism throughout the United States and Europe. And with all intention, with all outward appearances, Charles Templeton seemed to be a better, superior preacher to Billy Graham. And as they grew in their knowledge and in their preaching and in their ministry, Charles had this overwhelming influence and desire to go on to further his education and he went to Princeton Theological Seminary. And it was during those days of seminary where higher critical thinking of the Bible was so predominant that basically anyone who went to seminary was only taught one view about the Bible. And they were taught that view about the Bible as being the truth. And there is no other truth that the Bible was simply a book written by men and is not inspired by God. Let me give you an example. For, get this, 125 years, men and women who were preparing for ministry in seminaries were taught that there never was a Pontius Pilate recorded in Luke and in Matthew. We have no historical evidence that there was ever a man named Pontius Pilate who ruled in that area of Judea. And so they were taught that the Bible is full of errors because this was obviously a creation of the Christian community who put together this story to beef up their credentials so that others who weren't aware of this would understand that basically this Jesus was something more than just a man when in fact he was just a man. Because we have evidence historical evidence that there was no Pontius Pilate. And then in 1980, 
archaeologists were uncovering in the southern city of Caesarea. There's Caesarea Philippi in the north, and then there's a Caesarea in the south. Archaeologists were uncovering an amphitheater that, were built, that was built by the Romans. And as they uncovered that amphitheater, there in that place is a marker to this day that has the inscription dedicating the amphitheater on the day it was built and guess whose name is written on it? Pontius Pilate. For 125 years, people were taught the Bible's not true because there's no Pontius Pilate. I don't know about you, but that kind of angers me. Does it, does it anger you? It angers me in the same way as I watch TV at night and I hear stories of things that are happening and they're not true. It angers me in the sense where, where I hear of people making pledges of doing certain things and then they lie in order to get their way or to feather their pocket. It makes me angry. Why? Because truth is vitally important to everyone, including you. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, listen to me. What I have preached to you is true. And the forces of this dark world are going to do everything they can to make you loosen the belt. And the moment you loosen the belt, everything else in the armor is useless. I don't know about you, but in the days that we live, there are some things that really bring to mind the, the importance of living in our days. How we are, how are they when we are, that's easy for you to say. How are we then to use this armament, the belt of truth? How are we to do, how, how are we to live as Christians going forward? Well, here's the purpose of the belt. The belt is to gird you in such a way that it is meant to strengthen you. It is meant to strengthen you. How does that do that? Well, first, please notice that it is to strengthen you by first compacting all the graces that God has poured out in Jesus Christ into your soul to allow you to breathe the freshness of the gospel. When God says that he forgives anyone who repents and believes in Jesus Christ, he means it. The gospel is in this message. It is that we are saved by grace through faith in what Christ did in his sacrifice for our sins. There is nothing we can do, not one thing more we can do to save ourselves. It has been completed. It has been accomplished. It has been finished in the work of Christ. And so when God says to you, I have forgiven you and cleansed you and made you my own, you are his people. And for the Ephesians, that would have been huge in dealing with the battles they would face where they would have their friends come to them and say, we haven't seen you at the temple lately. What's the matter with you? You haven't joined in the mass orgies we've been celebrating in worship. What are you, some kind of weird person? Are you gone, are you gone off the deep edge? It was in those moments of peer pressure that they would need to be reminded of the truth. That they now belong to God who has saved them through Jesus Christ. 
And through that work of the cross, they have called, been called to be a priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God in the midst of a city that didn't. You say, well, well, that doesn't happen anymore. Well, it happened to me. Right after coming to faith in Christ, I really began to search God and say, Lord, I'll serve you in any way, capacity. I'll go overseas and be a missionary. I'll never marry. Whatever you say, Lord, I'll do. And as I began to go down that road, my sister, who was not a believer at the time, came to me and said, look at me, look at me. You don't have to do this. And I said, what do you mean I don't have to do this? She said, look, we, we believe in God. Okay, we believe in Jesus. Great, but you don't have to be a pastor. Really? You know, you might find the cure to cancer. You might find some other thing to do in your life that might be more beneficial. You, you don't have to do this. <laughs> and I was just dumbfounded because I really began to question, maybe she's right. Maybe I'm going down the wrong road. Years later, as she made her own journey through her life and came to faith in Christ, she pulled me aside during a birthday party and she said, there's something I have to tell you. I said, what is it? I want to ask your forgiveness. For, for what? She said, I told you a long time ago that you were wasting your life. And she said, you were doing the most important work that any person could ever dedicate themselves to. Five years later, she died of cancer. And she died in the hope of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that the only hope of our world is the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's really what is at stake here. The second thing is important about this truth is that it is given to strengthen our souls under great and long-term conflict. What do I mean by that? This battle is not brief. It doesn't end tomorrow. It is a continual battle and will continue until Christ returns. And there were many in Peter's day who said, well, when is Jesus coming back? And Peter said, we don't know. One day is a thousand years and a thousand years of one day is in the Lord. He is at work in the world redeeming people to himself. We have no clue when he's coming back. But let me tell you, he's coming back. And people still question that today. Don't they? So what are we to hold on to in this age? What is going to sustain your faith in an age where now we live for the first time in the history of our country where we're seeing a whole generation raised before us who has basically adopted a lifestyle that no longer even has a knowledge of God? Do we live in despair? No. We have the only hope, the only truth, 
that can save anyone. The real question is, do I believe that? Do I really believe that? Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our Father, as we